0: we'll talk through the second part of our series on methods that'll help you be different and build something unique. Last week, we talked about the personal Venn diagram method. This week, we'll talk about the problems and opportunities method. We've got a bunch of methods we teach our founders at Tacklebox, but problems and opportunities might be the most useful one because it directly fights against the human instinct we all have to unknowingly sabotage our own startups. For lots of our founders, just learning about problems and opportunities is like turning the lights on. Before probs and ops, as we call it, their startup trudged along. Afterwards, it galloped. You might have noticed that I changed the title of the series from How to Be Different. I did this because when I saw How to Be Different pop up on Spotify, it felt too much like an accusation. Like I was lecturing you after you failed a social studies test to eighth grade, And that is no fun, especially this time of year. I know lots of you are on vacation, if your decision is to listen to someone tell you you've got to be different, or fire up some pop secret and watch Feast of the Seven Fishes on Netflix, you're spending a tight hour 49 learning about bacala and salted cod. People will do just about anything to avoid discomfort, and being told you have to be different is uncomfortable. Editor's note, I'd give Feast of the Seven Fishes a 7.6 out of 10 on the Christmas movie scale, nestled right below the holiday and right above the family stone. So, this is the second episode in the Methods series. It will help you be different, but much like how I put Ruby's heart pill in peanut butter to get her to take it, we'll use a more appetizing title to deliver the stuff you might not know you want, but almost certainly need. If you aren't different, then you're the same, and 90% or whatever of startups fail, and you definitely don't want that. And to talk problems and opportunities, we have to start with a story about one of the many times my instincts sabotaged my startup probably the most painful time, or the most painful time so far, at least. The year was 2014, and I was running a startup called Find Your Lobster, a Facebook-driven mobile dating app. We were similar to Tinder and Hinge, but had launched about eight months before either, and as my dad says, that plus $1.50 will get you on the subway. During the early days, I first pivoted to a dating app in late 2012. The problem we had to overcome in order to grow was stigma. Stigma. No one in their 20s used dating apps, and everyone in their brother was convinced that no one ever would. Nearly every VC I pitched parroted the same response: no one attractive in their 20s will ever use a dating app. I knew that that wasn't true. Conversations with customers, often in bars, went like this: I'd approach a group of people who seemed like my audience and tell them what I was doing. The dating app connected to Facebook, so they could find and date people they had mutual friends with. Then. I'd ask if anyone was interested. Sometimes I'd show them the app. Before I had an app, I'd show them a clickable prototype that had no functionality behind it. Without fail, every group of young, attractive, single people gave me the same response. Looks cool. I'd never use it personally, but I could definitely see how someone else might. Then, over the course of the night, they'd find me, but they'd be alone. What's the name of the app again, they'd say, under their breath, looking left and right to make sure no one saw or heard them? Can I download it? I can totally meet people. I'm just busy at work, and maybe this would be faster. Plus, they wouldn't be strangers. And you're sure none of my friends will ever find out I'm on this? It was clear the Stigma Dam had a spider web of cracks and was going to give way any moment. I just had to keep the pressure on. Eventually I was able to raise some money and start building. We got an early, clunky, bug-filled version I was embarrassed to push live, but people used it, warts and all. We were growing. There was a little buzz in New York City. A friend sent me the link without knowing I was the founder, and one morning, I saw the person in front of me online at the coffee shop on our website. And then Tinder launched. They were dynamite behind the weekend stigma wall, and it collapsed. The app flooded across America, and every good-looking person in their 20s signed up. The stigma was gone. Tinder was a significantly better product than Find Your Lobster for the customers we were after. A good lesson, no one ever uses or recommends the second best of anything when the best is available. Our downloads went from growing every day to basically zero over the course of a few weeks. I didn't know then what I know now, that this was an incredible opportunity to get small, to focus on a niche where I could dramatically outperform Tinder, to choose my battleground rather than play on theirs and ride the momentum they'd created by removing the stigma. A dating app for ex-college athletes only, for example, which I tested, got serious momentum in the post-Tinder world, but I didn't stick with it. Instead, I tried to add functionality to our core app to compete head-to-head with Tinder. Chasing competitors' functionality is a losing strategy. But, again, I didn't know then what I know now. So, I told our team to build out swiping. Soon after, our CTO left but not before building the swiping tech halfway and making the current app inoperable. Money was drying up, so I moved to my parents' basement. We were down to about 25K in the bank with an app that didn't function and a competitor that taking taken all of our customers, and I hadn't slept more than three hours in a month. I had a decision to make, and I followed my instincts. Stretch that 25K, run on fumes for as long as I can. Don't lose this, keep doing what I'm doing, stick to the plan. I found a Romanian dev shop that claimed they'd finished the app for 23 k in 10 weeks with swiping and all the other features we wanted. The other 2 k would be used for servers and whatever else came up. You can probably guess what happened next. The dev shop didn't get the work done. The money ran out, and no one is funding a half-built product. We died and sold what was left for parts. Meanwhile, down in D.C., Hinge was facing an eerily similar journey, completely separate from us. They had a similar product and faced the same Tinder problem. According to articles that came out later, they too were down to tens of thousands of dollars in the bank. They too needed growth to fundraise. They too couldn't do it with their current user base. They too needed a huge jolt. But they took a different path from us. They had bugs just like we did, but they were able to remove features and buckle down to get to the bare bones app that was usable as fast as humanly possible. Then they spent their last 25 k on Party. They got sponsors and paid for a famous event space and booze and a super popular DJ. They got press for the party and spread the word through guerrilla marketing. And thousands of people showed up. Each one downloaded the app on entry and then after the party they each got an email saying they could beat everyone else that they'd seen at the party on the app. There was a massive spike in usage which showed the hockey stick growth that VCs need to see and led to a few million dollars of investment. And now, Hinge is worth whatever it's worth, and find your lobster with an anecdote in a podcast. For the majority of things in your life, the best route will be to solve problems. Something's broken, spend the time to fix it. Got a bunch of emails, go through and respond to them. This will create iterative, consistent gains. Being reactive keeps the status quo. But for startups, this type of progress is a disaster. The status quo is a disaster. And I'm not just talking about startups that want to be venture-backed. Any type of business, even a business that has no interest in hyper-growth or funding and wants to be bootstrapped and profitable and stay under five employees, still needs to get early asymmetric progress. You need something to pay off 100x relative to the effort or resources committed to it. You need an hour of work to equal 100 hours of output a couple of times somehow. Or you'll never get up and over the first step. You'll never get to any sort of escape velocity that can support a business. Our brains were not programmed to think like this. They exist to mitigate risk, to focus on the floor, the worst thing that can happen, and to ignore the ceiling, the best thing that can happen. If the party failed, hinge might have been in trouble, but if it succeeded, it would turn 25k into a few million dollars of runway. There was no way to get to that result by just plugging along, putting out little fires. Asymmetric returns never come from normal actions in the startup world. And as we'll explore Failure in that scenario was actually pretty unlikely. Most bets don't have the downside people assume. We're coming out with a line of idea to start up mugs, and the very first one says, Humans overestimate potential downside, underestimate potential upside. Yeah, they're nerdy. They're kind of cool. Thinking like this is extraordinarily hard. Even if you want to, what is an opportunity? Should you just throw a 25k party then? Editor's note, no. So what are good bets to take? How do you find them? Today, we'll talk about how to reprogram your brain to identify them, to be creative with your opportunities. We'll give you a few examples to help you along the way and a way to stay accountable to the whole process. And we'll start with the to-do list monster after a little smooth jazz. Tacklebox is an accelerator for people with ideas and full-time jobs. If you aren't sure what to do next, we've got a step-by-step process that's helped people build tons of businesses worth lots of money. It's got 25 hours of content, examples, and templates organized into a tight seven-block path. If you get stuck and need feedback, I meet with founders every other week to organize sprints and help with tactics and approach. If you get lonely, we've got a bunch of other founders building alongside you. They're talented and driven in all an absolute delight. If that's interesting, apply at gettacklebox.com and to sweeten it, Code holiday gets you 50% off your first month for the next couple of weeks. Back to it. The to do list monster. There are two difficult parts of the problems and opportunities method. First is identifying potential opportunities, and second is making the time to execute on them. We'll start with identification. My favorite approach for coming up with opportunities is what I call the to do list monster. It's straightforward but hard. Here is how it works. Start by looking at your to-do list. Then think of things that, if they worked, could make the entire list irrelevant. Here's what I mean. At Find Your Lobster, my to-do list was filled with things like respond to developers' questions on X, Y, and Z, and think up copy for FAQs, and tweak the deck and reach out to investors and answer customer emails and a bunch of other things. There were so many little fires that I spent all my time putting them all out. I wouldn't even say I made incremental gains each day. It more felt like I was treading water until I couldn't handle treading water anymore and I drowned. Most to-do lists will drown your startup. I visualize the to-do list monster as an actual monster. Sullivan from Monsters, Inc. actually. And I think about him looking at that giant never-ending list of annoying but predictable things and eating it. What's the thing that, if it worked, would make everything else obsolete? To answer that, the first big thing to identify is what the point of everything on your list actually is. What are you building towards? What's the next step on your entrepreneurial staircase? For me at Find Your Lobster, I wanted to benefit from network effects. We needed thousands of users in New York City for the app to reach its potential, and since it was free, that meant we needed to raise a few million dollars to do it. That was a step. To do that, we needed to show investors we were already growing at the speed that made network effects inevitable. Nobody wants to fund you to help you figure out how to grow. They want you to be well on your way to succeeding with or without them. Then they cling on for the ride. That de-risks it. So user growth was the only thing that mattered. I should have been looking at my to-do list and asking one question. What are the bets I can make that, if they work, become a massive shortcut to fast user growth? Unfortunately, I never thought like that, but Hinge did. Throwing a party is a true to-do list monster, because if that party gets you thousands of new users, that kickstarts growth, and along with some press, you're going to be 100x more likely to raise than you were before the party. I'll give another example, because I think examples are helpful to get the wheels turning. Dana Trout, founder of HealthAid Kombucha, you've seen it, it's the one in the shampoo bottle with an anchor on it, was down to 20k or so in the bank during the very early days, and the business was slowly fading away. She probably could have made that 20K last a few more months until the company eventually died. Instead, she created a competition and put up ads for it on Craigslist. She invited salespeople to work with her for a month to try to sell kombucha wholesale to grocery stores and health food stores and schools and wherever else. They didn't have to do it full time, and she would give them enormous commissions on whatever they sold. Also, the winner at the end of the month long contest would get 20K the last 20K in the bank. Nearly 20 people responded, and they sold the crap out of her kombucha for a month. And the one who won ended up keeping the 20 k and came on full-time. The others kept their big commissions and went on with their life. But HealthAid had created tons of relationships during the month and moved an enormous amount of product, all for 20 I've noticed a key distinction with founders that leverage opportunities rather than solely solving problems. They see their limitations, their restrictions, as opportunities. In the words of Ryan Holiday, the obstacle is the way. If you've only got 20K left, that's not a limitation, it's an opportunity. What can you do to leverage that 20K so that it can maybe give you a 100X return? If you have no money but need to work with customers, that's fine, what can you do? How can you use that to your advantage through partnerships or in-person events with a small fee or latching onto something that already exists? We'll talk through an example of that in a second. When we're stressed, we get less creative. That is a scientific fact. It's one of the big arguments for basic or universal income. The second people have at least a base level of financial security, the right hemisphere of their brain increases measurably. So, how do you think creatively while you're stressed? Well, I'm glad you asked. Ambiguity aversion, loss aversion, and magicians. Calling out the devil is the best way to start fighting it. So a good way to creatively think about opportunities is to first understand why it's so hard to creatively think of opportunities. The answer is two aversions, ambiguity aversion and loss aversion. Ambiguity aversion is our tendency to favor known risk over unknown risk. It's the devil you know syndrome. Loss aversion, you're probably familiar with. This is the instinct to overvalue what we have. So if you lose 10 bucks, it feels two times worse than if you find 10 bucks feels good. Here's an example of how each sabotage opportunities. Let's say you have an idea to help parents with young kids plan dates. The second a couple has a kid, happiness in their marriage drops 70%, which is a true stat. And a huge reason is they no longer make time for their relationship. You decide you wanna get in front of these people and start planning dates for them, but you've only got 500 bucks. If you were part of Tacklebox, maybe we'd think up this opportunity together. You hire a magician for an hour in Central Park. You buy 10 bottles of wine and you order 10 pizzas. Then you hand out flyers the morning you hired the magician for to everyone in Central Park who's got a stroller or a young kid with them. You say, hey, we know how hard it is keeping a relationship going while you've got a young kid. We'll help you plan events to keep the relationship strong. And to prove it, we've got a magician this afternoon that'll entertain your kids for an hour while you drink wine and eat pizza 20 yards away. If you like it, Sign up to our program, and we'll plan two dates for you next month. Maybe you send DMs to a bunch of writers for local magazines and tip them off too. If they're married with young kids, maybe you invite them. Maybe you invite a photographer friend as well, and you have a downstream strategy to engage all of these customers and add value after you get their emails. Since you've never done anything like this, you can't really imagine what the downside might be. That's ambiguity aversion. You don't know if it'll be more expensive than you thought or harder than you thought or just uncomfortable. So you don't want to do it. You'd rather do something where you know what the worst case scenario is, even if the upside isn't nearly as high. The loss aversion side of this is trickier. Entrepreneurs overvalue what they have and worst of all, think they have more than they do. You might think that you'll ruin your brand if you do this and it doesn't work. Or if the branding isn't perfect, people won't think you're serious or a million other things that'll hold you back. You think you'll lose what you had, but the key is to remember you have nothing. You don't have a bunch of potential customers you'll lose, but you do have an opportunity to try and build relationships with strangers. This should be freeing, but if you think you have a reputation and customers online, it'll be wildly constricting. Loss aversion causes entrepreneurs to avoid interacting with customers for fear of losing them. This, obviously, is a disaster. Scheduling and the Actual Downside Now that you know about problems and opportunities, how do you implement it? Back to our Day One app from last week. The Problems and Opportunities method is an exercise in reflection. Create a prompt in your day one app for Sundays to look back at your week and think about exactly what you did. Were you solving problems or chasing opportunities? Were you optimizing for the floor or maximizing your ceiling? Then create a prompt to look at your to-do list and spend 20 minutes thinking up the monster. What, if it worked, could make everything on the list obsolete? What could eat all of your tasks? And the final prompt, what's the actual downside risk? What actually happens if it doesn't work? Let's think about Hinge's party. What was the real risk? Sure, no one could have shown up and you'd be out your final 25k. But that was really unlikely. It was a free party in DC with a popular DJ and booze. Worst case was realistically that only a few hundred people showed up instead of the thousands that actually did. But the party also got them a bunch of press, which they couldn't have gotten any other way. There was nothing interesting about a random dating app there was a lot interesting about a free party. It's rare, it gets clicked, so it gets covered. I don't know the numbers, but I remember seeing press about the party as it happened while I was in New York. They probably got hundreds of thousands of eyeballs on the stories which led to the app, which, again, they couldn't have possibly bought with 25k of ads. So, the worst case was still way better than any other strategy. The two aversions make you think things could go really wrong, but they couldn't. And for Dana Shrout and Kombucha, what was the real risk of the sales contest strategy? That no one sold any Kombucha? Well, wouldn't that just confirm there wasn't actually a market there and they would be able to move on to something else? The real risk always is the status quo. To keep solving problems, making iterative progress, staying inside the lanes that take you to the place most startup roads lead, failure in a job interview at Deloitte. The end. Here's what I'd do if I were you. I'd take the next 30 minutes while this is fresh in your head and come up with a few potential opportunities for your startup idea. Schedule 30 minutes later this week if you can't do it right now. Start by thinking about your to-do list and zooming out. What step up are you hoping to make with all those tasks? Then think about becoming famous to your customers, the smallest group of customers you could possibly become famous to. How can you get in front of them in a compelling way in a short period of time? How might you use 10% or 20% of the resources you're planning on spending on this project on that? What about 50%? How can you take a shortcut to the end of your list? What is the to-do list monster and how might someone super creative go about it? Next, think of the actual downside. What are the real risks? What's the likelihood of them? Remember the side effects from opportunities, almost always make up a ton of extra value. Finally, plan to execute on it ASAP. These things benefit from compound interest and practice and get scarier the longer you think of them. Better to do them now. Break it down so it's manageable, but don't let the aversions creep up on you. The riskiest thing you can do is be reactive, to solve the things that come across your desk and hope that somehow that leads to asymmetric growth. It won't. As always, the uncomfortable stuff is the stuff to lean into. Our instincts stink. Work around them. And change the water on the bacalao. It's too salty. That was a feast of the seven fishes joke. As I say it, I realize it's definitely not a good enough movie to quote. But here we are. This was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by TackleBox. If you liked this episode and you made it this far, give us five stars on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find the pod. And if you're interested in TackleBox, apply at gettacklebox.com. Have a great week.